Uh, good afternoon, everyone. Um, as Anne told you, I'm not a chef, um, unless you count volunteering at the school canteen. Um, I'm a socialist researcher and I have a PhD and I can make 52 toasted cheese sandwiches in 30 minutes. Um, even though Anne said I was going to talk about food trends, I'm not actually here to talk about food trends. Don't get me wrong, I like kale fritters served on a hubcap by a woman with a neck tattoo as much as the next person. Um, <laughs> but I'm a social researcher, so I'm not interested in food trends. I'm interested in seeing the way we eat in Australia transformed for every single one of us as a permanent change rather than as a fleeting fad. So today I want to talk about two big social changes already underway that will shape what we eat in the future, what tomorrow's meal will be. And I also want to talk about one area of social inequality that has to be remedied if we are going to continue to call ourselves a nation that believes in equality and fairness. And I'm going to talk about these topics, not necessarily by telling you a whole lot of statistics, but telling you about the stories of the people I've met in the last decade uh, of my time as a researcher on food and eating. So the first thing I'm going to say is what you already know. We are an ageing population. If any of you there, out there, are lucky enough to reach the age of 85, which will probably still the median age for women, men are behind us, coming up very quickly, but that's the median age for women at the moment, you may well be living in a retirement living complex somewhere close to family and friends, and you will need to eat well to age well. So I want to tell you about Dorothy. So I met Dorothy two years ago as part of a large research project I was doing on uh, ageing and healthy eating. And Dorothy was in her mid-80s, she had kids, she had grandkids. Um, she was living in actually a very good, very clean, very well-staffed aged facility in the southern suburbs of Sydney. Now, this aged facility was lucky. It had a chef that would come in most days, not weekends, but weekdays, to cook food for the residents. And I've been to plenty of aged care facilities where they just get food taken in and they heat it up. So the food was pretty good. It was good enough for Dorothy to venture out of her room to eat sometimes, but she didn't eat out um, in the communal area all the time. In fact, she would only really have one meal a day. Uh, she didn't like eating in the communal area, and I visited the communal area. It was quite nice. It was light, and it was set up like a modest cafe. And I asked her why she didn't like to really eat meals there, and she said, it's not the food that's the problem. Um, I'm scared stiff of all the people that have got dementia, and I get lonely. Um, I don't mix with people here because they're not here. I go out to the bus trip, I get on the bus, and within five minutes, everyone's asleep. No one talks to me. I go to the lounge room, everybody's asleep. Um, and I think I can't stand this anymore, and I go back to my room. So Dorothy basically mainly lived in her room with her books and her radio and her snacks. She wasn't allowed to have food in her room. You're not allowed to. There's health and safety problems with that. So she ate chips, biscuits, and cups of tea. She was lucky. She had a relative come once a week to take her out to dinner and she'd always have fish and chips and sometimes they'd take her at home and she'd have a roast. Mainly she walked to the club so she could play bingo and speak to people that wouldn't fall asleep. And um, she basically ate biscuits and, and drank tea. So what does this story tell us other than feeling a bit sorry for Dorothy but you wouldn't, she's smart and clever and she's actually enjoying life to some extent but I'm worried about her health outcomes. It's a story because it tells us that um, food is social. 
It's not good enough that food is nutritious or we know how many calories are in it. We have to ensure the social context in which we eat food is right. This is particularly important, not just because we're an ageing society, but the other big social trend is the rise of the single-person household. More and more of us are living alone. And all the research shows that living alone is linked to pretty bad eating habits. So just living alone means you are less likely to eat fruit and vegetables or your proper serving of fruit and vegetables every day. So you add this to all the other health problems associated with getting older, so lack of appetite, the problem of the physical task of cooking, the problem of going out to actually do the food cooking. It's actually a physical, physically quite difficult, and you can see how the problem is compounded. So I don't just want to talk to you about what's happening. I want to talk to you about what I, I think we should do. Um, we're lucky. Maggie Beer has started a foundation, which I think will emerge as a national advocate for higher food standards um, in people living at home, on their own, supported care institutions. It's a great initiative. Check out its strategic plan online. So we've got Stephanie Alexander making sure that Australians' kids can grow and cook food, and we've got Stephanie, uh, we've got um, Maggie at the other end of the scale worried about older Australians. So it's just everybody in the middle that we have to start to be concerned about. The other thing is, um, do you know somebody, an uh, older person living in retirement care? Commit yourself to cooking them a meal once a month, inviting them to your house, whether they live in retirement care or live alone. It might be actually the best meal they've eaten in weeks. The second thing we know that's happening to this nation, that's shaping it, is we are an immigrant nation. We're going to approach 24 million by 2020. And I've spent quite a bit of my career talking to first and second generation migrants. I want to tell you about one of them I met in 2012 as part of a project I did for SBS, uh, an international student from India called Amit. I interviewed him and a whole lot of his fellow Indian international students. So he was from a lower middle class family in India. He came as an international student here, paying about 30k a year to do a hospitality course at an accredited college. These are kinds of courses are promoting really heavily in India, and the promoters say it's going to be easy to find accommodation and jobs, you'll be sweet. And the reality, of course, is not exactly that. We'll set aside the high cost of living and the difficulty of finding housing in a city like Sydney. He and his fellow students found real problems trying to find an employer prepared to take them on as temporary residents. So in order to make ends meet, <coughs> excuse me, they were all doing cash-in-hand jobs in restaurants. Uh, the restaurant owners were prepared to sponsor them for fifty dollars to $60,000, so a large cash bribe. Um, they were, of course, this is the black economy, so they were making six, five, seven, eight dollars an hour if they complained about lack of breaks or anything else or occupational health and safety. The boss would say, if you don't like it, there's lots of people waiting for your job. Um, perhaps more concerning than the exploitation of these uh, international students by restaurant owners was the extremely poor quality training provided by some of these colleges. Amit said, the teachers aren't qualified. I've been studying cooking for nearly three years, so that's 30k a year for three years, and I don't know how to not hold a knife properly. He actually went and looked on YouTube on a video and taught himself how to hold a knife. Um, we cannot call ourselves a great food nation if accessibility to food is premised on a semi-slave class of migrant workers. Um, we really need to worry, we need to make sure that all our food is cruelty-free, and it's not just chickens we have to worry about, we have to worry about human beings. Um, and look, I know that, that actually the problem it does not reside in this room. The problem resides uh, amongst consumers themselves who think that food should be cheap. 
and we also have to stamp out some of these dodgy hospitality courses as well. Um, Finally, for a nation that says we believe in a fair go and mateship and egalitarianism and Hugh Jackman in speedos and all the rest of it, I have some bad news. Um, we are not a fair nation. Social inequality in Australia is actually getting worse, and that's extraordinary given we have had decades of uh, economic growth in this country. So you've heard a lot today about Indigenous cultures, about Indigenous food, and that is fantastic. Um, but we all know the state and health of Indigenous Australians is one of the many signs that we have a real problem with social equality in Australia. We are extraordinarily lucky to have uh, champions of Indigenous food, like the extraordinary Kylie Kwong, and also Clayton Donovan, who you heard about at the beginning of today. Uh, eight years ago, I wrote a book on food inequality in Australia. Uh, and I, in that chapter, I looked at ways in which our chefs at that time, this is some time ago, eight years, had overlooked the potential of Indigenous foods. Not all of them, but most of them. Now, that's no longer the case, and that is wonderful. Um, but the book also looked at food and cooking in Indigenous communities and the health and wellbeing in regional, remote and urban areas, and the reality was shocking. And in eight years, nothing has changed. In fact, it's gotten worse. About 30% of Indigenous adults are worried on a daily basis about going without food, and it makes them the most vulnerable group in our society, on par with the homeless. Uh, rates of food insecurity are highest in remote communities, of course, but they also exist in urban environments. So the next time you have a coffee uh, in Redfern in a trendy cafe, just think that only a couple of blocks away, you've got families who are having real problems about accessing food because of poor income, house infrastructure and overcrowding, access to transport, storage and cooking facilities. Uh, the real dire problem is in remote locations, so often food is only available through a general store, and on average it's 26% higher for food in a general store in remote Australia than it is even in a place like Darwin. Um, so the Australian population have been, you know, fetching about food prices now for some time, but in fact, food prices in Australia have actually are that less of the percentage of, uh, of your income weekly now than 10 years ago. They've become, they've become flat, but they are chronic in Indigenous communities. So you can see how worrisome this is. It's not just actually access to food, and generally the food available in those community stores is pretty bad. It's, it's ready-made meals, it's stuff in cans. It's really not, we're really not able to get a lot of uh, the fresh food that we take for granted here. But the other thing is, it's interesting, that the lack of actual resources. So even basic things like a working stove. So you can cook things outside in a fire, but that's not always, um, not always uh, uh, possible. Uh, one academic survey found um, almost of 4,000 Indigenous homes in the Northern Territory found that only 38% had a stove, an oven, running water or storage for food. So what can we do about that? It's wonderful that the food industry is supporting uh, indigenous foods and really embracing them. But what can the rest of us do? Uh, go to reconciliation.org.au, look under, get the tab, get involved. I think reconciliation for most of us seems like a nice thing, um, but it also seems like a kind of amorphous concept, like a fancy and fluffy word. But actually will only work if we're all involved in it, if we all uh, are part of this process. If it's conducted properly, it will ultimately bring about better health and, health and well-being incomes for Indigenous Australians. Um, 
The other thing is do some research online, have a look at what's happening with Indigenous community projects attempting to address food security issues. There's a remote Indigenous gardens network which is supporting local food production and really trying to free local communities from having to be reliant on the general store takeaway. That's it for me. Thank you so much.